Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. CCR and Uprise Radio are produced on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. Uh, we recognise elders past, present and emerging and their unceded sovereignty. My name is Jackson. Uh, I'm here in the studio with James and welcome to Uprise Radio. Hey, James. Hey, Jackson. And uh, welcome to everybody listening. Good way to start your maybe your commute home or... You know, you might be making some dinner or whatever you're doing, a little walk along the sunny streets, a little bit of Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, a classic. Mm. Never gets old, that one. You should put it on regularly, I find. And a good reminder that there was really good rap metal, but it was rare. Not like corn. Yeah, I'm not sure it holds up quite as well. Mm. Limp Bizkit, Linkin Park. No, I don't think they weren't that great at the time, so I don't think they'll hold up. Well, now, no, yeah, agreed. Well, how's um, your week been? It yeah, it's been busy. It's been good. Uh, I think you know, like many people, I was at the uh, march on Monday. Monday, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're gonna have a little bit of a chat about that on the show, and yeah, I saw a couple of really good films over the past week or so. Um, one called Nomad Land, which is a Francis McDormand film, and it uh, kind of, I guess, tells a bit of a story about the kind of decaying American capitalism and the lack of, I guess, options for people where an industry has left their town. And the other was Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a film about uh, Fred Hampton and the Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers and how the FBI uh, infiltrated uh, that um, part of the Panther Party. they, They infiltrated a lot of the Panthers and yeah, it's, it's a, it's probably one of the better films I've seen uh, ever actually. And I would strongly recommend that listeners of our show and 3CR definitely get along to see that it is equal parts, um, you know, moving and inspiring the way that Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party were able to unite people uh, across, not just um, the black community and the Black Panthers, but working class people, you know, um, disenfranchised people, part of the anti-war and other movements. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was equally um, really kind of heartbreaking as well to see how much uh, influence and um, the FBI and the state can have to really destroy uh, our hopes. 
Yeah, I'm I'm not actually familiar with the story of Fred Hampton's demise, which I suppose is what this film is showing, like the rise of the Black Panthers and then the way they were undone by the FBI. Can you talk, without ruining the film, can you just talk a little bit about how that went down? I think I imagine that he was like the victim of a like a false sting or something that, that landed him in prison. But from what you were telling me the other day, it's like they just mowed him and his closest um, allies down while they slept in their house or something like that. Yeah, well, he he went to prison a number of times uh, as part of political, uh, politically motivated charges. Uh, from you know, I, I think uh, I, I've I've learned, I guess, read a bit about uh, Fred Hampton previously, but so I'm trying to kind of put together what I think I remember and you know what was in the film. But I, I think you know, um, you know, his son and uh, his former partner were. were uh, consultants on the film, so I, I assume the accuracy is, is pretty good. But yeah, that they he was, um, I believe, the night before he was to go back into jail, and um, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI had said that it wasn't enough for him to go to jail. They were really concerned about the influence he was having on the community, and I, I'm pretty sure it was something like 96 bullets were fired into his apartment as a number of other people were um, wounded or killed as well. Uh, it was, you know, it was straight out warfare between the FBI and the Black Panther Party in that time. And I guess that shows the, you know, how much of a threat that the state saw the Panther Party being. Yeah, and, you know, he was one of a number of black rights activists who were drawing those dots between the experience of um, African-Americans and the experience of poor Americans and the experience of uh, poor Americans sent off to imperial wars and mm. you know, how all of these dots joined up. And that is where they, where it becomes very dangerous because it starts to, you know, that political consciousness starts to rise and the connection between mm. those various things happen. And it's, a re- yeah, I think it, I'd love to see the film and it is really inspiring, um, you know, some of the... You know, the pretty large channels and aisles that Hampton and the Panthers were able to reach across and form alliances. You know, I, you know, I think um, Dave Karen on this show once used the phrase, the need to form uncomfortable alliances is really essential for the left to grow to a size where it's powerful. And, um, yeah, I think that's um, one, just one reason to, to go and check out, check out the film. And we've got a, very, uh, a really varied show today. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to talk about this Francis McDormand film. Um, that you've mentioned as well. You know, we, we do want to touch on the March for Justice and everything that's been going down uh, in Parliament House that has brought a lot of women's experiences and struggles right to the, the forefront of um, uh, the mainstream media discussion as well. Uh, and we're also going to talk a little bit about, you know, perhaps in a disconnected way, I'm sure we'll find a segue, uh, a little bit about public infrastructure investment in small communities, about uh, I went to a great... Uh, rally on the weekend that was a, a broad alliance, not mm-hmm. quite as um, radical or potent as as the Panthers, but uh, you know an alliance of Greens and socialists and Extinction Rebellion and bike activists um, from in the western suburbs. But it felt really good for those people to come together and find common ground. And we, we're going to talk to someone from Bike West a little later in the show. But back to the movies. Uh, what was the other film you saw? Uh, the other film is called Nomad Land, and yeah, it's about a town in the US that was centered around uh, an industry that it closed down. And yeah, I guess again, perhaps don't want to give too much away of the film, but I, th- I think what's interesting is it was you know centered on a character 
who, you know, seem to have a lot of things just not going their way, I guess, in life. And it really pointed the issue of that at capitalism itself. And I think the, you know, decaying US uh, economy and empire kind of falling by the wayside, the had various jobs around, you know, the different areas of the US working as an Amazon packer and different kind of seasonal jobs and things like that. So it really, it showed, I guess, two things, you know, I think some of the kind of insecure work and housing that people in America are experiencing. And obviously that is something that is happening in Australia also. But also, uh, I guess, looking at things like, you know, some of the industries which may be, uh, you know, not sustainable in, in a hopefully uh, a future that looks at, at climate change more deeply. And it's not just the people's jobs that were that suffered it was really the life of of the town itself you know the the joy the incidental kind of things that you have and i think you know something just camaraderie with your workmates and things that you know has been we've spoken about and has been lost a bit through the pandemic mm. you know some of those incidental things catching up for a coffee uh, you know in work hours or or a drink afterwards and things like that and all of those things are kind of lost a bit and yeah, it was a really interesting film. Yeah, and to that point about, you know, the decaying American capitalism and the experience of workers in, you know, what is more and more resembling a failed state. Um, you know, Jorge Joquera, who's the recently elected socialist councillor over where I live in the West, who was speaking at this bike rally on the weekend, you know, he was saying that bikes for a lot of the working world, a lot of the developing world is the main form of transport, the only form of transport that people can afford and use regularly and having safe access to pathways is really important. And he said that, you know, Australia obviously isn't like that with a, with higher wages and, you know, a lot more high sales of cars, but it is changing. He said recently surveys done in the States indicate that workers in the States, the majority of them are using bikes predominantly for transportation again. And it is interesting, you know, what that says about the changing economic fortunes of workers, you know, even those that have a job. Um, I wonder, and, you know, maybe that's something we'll discuss more later uh, when we're talking about that, the bike action, but, you know, what is that, is it just directly linked to, you know, a fall in people's wages or, you know, perhaps a link to people's, you know, desire to do something about the climate as well. They don't want to have a car or, you know, but, you know, maybe it's not just an economic choice. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we wanted to talk about the March for Justice that happened on Monday. Yes, I was... You said that you went to the one in Melbourne. I did. I was, I was at school, at the school where I work, and I was very encouraged to see a lot of young students... Mm. Um, of all genders, leaving, uh, carrying some really good signage um, and attending the march. And I think that's great, the uptick in young people getting out on the streets. Like, I think it's a really high level at the moment around climate and around these issues. It's really encouraging. But I think you um, were there and, yeah, what did what did you see on the day? Yeah, I, well, I guess the first thing, uh, not really knowing what to expect, uh, turning up in the Treasury Gardens, and just the, the amount of people there, I think, was really inspiring to start with. And you know, I think it's it's a really it's always a really awesome sign to see people with homemade banners and signs and things like that, because it's not just a kind of organised left group or union or whatever who's like, okay, we've got this action, so we're going to make a sign. Here's one of our 
slogans we're going to pull out of the drawer. You know, it's it's generally something that people feel passionate about. Yeah, and they're, something they're from their own experience for it beforehand. And, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, and I think that that's great. You know, and people just there was kind of a bit of an air of of impatience and excitement and. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I think that comes with people. Yeah, one of n- the girls that was leaving her sign was, "If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention." Mm. And I think that you know that feeling. I think impatience is such a great word, you know, because it means that people are not going to wait for slow burning mm. legislative change. Or you know, I loved you know when um, uh, the convener of the rally in Canberra confronted Michael McCormack. You know, his mm. response was, "Oh yeah, we're we're, we're going to read the report." She's mm. like, "You've had the report for fourteen months. Mm. You know, the time for reading is past. You need to implement it. You need to implement what has been. You know, you have the answers. You're just dragging your feet. Mm. We don't need another inquiry into stopping you know sexual assault in the workplace. Mm. We need action. And uh, it's a, it's a great point. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I think uh, it's probably not. I think yeah, from our places to men on a um, radio show can perhaps as more comment on the things that we've observed rather than you know put too much opinion about what should or shouldn't happen going forward um but yeah i thought there was a lot of really interesting things about the the march itself or well one is that there was not going to be a march which is an interesting choice and i think from that you know there were actually a couple of marches that kind of happened um perhaps almost spontaneously, but I think, you know, people seem to be a bit prepared in that. There was one that I, you know, followed on along with and, and went and observed where uh, a number of young high school women, uh, you know, a bunch of people got down to Flinders Street Station and then some people had glued their hands to the ground to, you know, I guess make more time for the police to not be able to take them away. And, yeah, though I think the police were quite shocked that there was separate action that was happening to the one that obviously they knew about. So, yeah, that that meant that there was uh, quite a huge police presence there. So, yeah, that was quite interesting to observe. That I think that, yeah, to see young women really uh, taking action upon themselves and to do something like that, you know, had obviously a bit of, pre-prepared preparation and mm. yeah it and was putting it was their great. bodies on the line yeah you know, how how was the response from the uh police presence there well there was a number of different sections of the police that came and i think they seemed confused about what to do in chain of command and eventually they did take people away and they uh, arrested a couple of people or took them uh aside without kind of necessarily um, I'm not sure of the charges that were laid, um, but, you know, there's plenty of people getting footage of that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure if, you know, if, the, if they're listening, people who are involved, they should get in contact with the Melbourne Activist Legal Group. And, yeah, but I think it was, um, you know, overall, all the actions across the country, I think, were just really inspiring. And it's, um, yeah, it was great to see. Hopefully it translates into government or legislation or someone actually not just reading a report or talking to their wife about the situation, but doing some change. Mm. Yeah, it was a very 
different scene uh, out in Footscray for our community bike ride on Saturday. And it's always interesting, um, you know, because it was a, a broad coalition, as I was saying. There was a big mm-hmm. socialist there. There was Extinction Rebellion West Side. There was Bike West. And there was the West Side Greens as well. Obviously, Extinction Rebellion's uh, motto is civic dis- dis- disobedience. And, you know, the woman who got up and spoke was saying this is a very mild form of civic disobedience and organized bike ride. And the bike ride was chaperoned by police. But that was quite essential because, you know, not everyone who was riding was an experienced bike rider. Mm. Um, the roads we were riding on are considered some of the more dangerous in the state. Um, so I was grateful for the police presence, but it's always an awkward uh, situation because mm. of the, their reactions at other rallies and in more confrontational actions can, you know, leave a lot to be desired. Mm. Uh, but I thought um, because I really enjoyed the collaborative nature of, of the rally um, and, you know, to your point before about, you know, the feeling of people getting out, being uh, spontaneous, taking action for a cause they believe in. It was really inspiring during uh, the bike ride through Footscray that both people in cars and people on the side of the road, they actually started like applauding and cheering uh, the people moving past. I was joking to a friend I was writing with that I think they're just excited not to see advertising, to see something (laughs) that isn't, you know, trying to sell them a product or Mm -hmm. make them feel guilty, you know, like it was just people out on the street, um, you know, trying to improve their suburbs in a, in a really mm. um, in a way that you know had both you know has like really great impacts locally but also links into some really big political ideas around climate change and mental health and you know um, yeah livable communities instead of you know we're, we're a growing city as everybody knows but we're lucky to have uh, John Simons with us he's come on to talk he's from bike West which are a long-term advocacy group in the West uh, trying to encourage more investment um, I believe we have him on the line now. Uh, John, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Ah, great. You're coming through loud and clear. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, um, it was an interesting collaboration uh, on Saturday between a number of different groups. How did you find working with the Socialists and the Greens and XR Westside um, on this this action? Uh, They were fantastic to work with, to be honest, and because... Organising those sorts of things is not really my strong suit. I'm more I'm an academic, so I like you know researching, putting you know, collecting lots of references and too many words, you know, using a hundred when ten would do. So organising those sorts of rallies is not really my strength. So they were fantastic, and it really um, it really helped bring in more people and brought a, a broader alliance, which is what Bike West we've been thinking about in the past six months. We really have to build a broader alliance to get bring more people along with the ideas. And this is a fantastic um, example of that. I was really happy with how it went. So it's an interesting um, area of public investment cycling because obviously there's a very visible aspect of cycling, which is like the lycra-clad mammals, if you will, you know, streaming into the city for their weekly commute. And, you know, we have seen a, a bit of investment in the West in building those big bike lanes. But for other types of bike riders, more like community bike riders or social bike riders who may want to replace their trip to the shops um, rather than taking the car they want to go on a bike or picking up the kids from school going to a local art center or you know sporting stadium that's the stuff that you know seems to be a bit slower in like setting up uh, paths that link up the big commuter lanes in the suburbs and you were talking about on the day this idea of the of the four s's like having links between schools shops uh, stadiums and train stations and stadiums could include art centers and things as well can you just talk yeah. a bit about like how that would work and what the impact on communities would be well um 
people often say, oh, we can't ride places because, you know, Melbourne's just too spread out. You know, it's too far to ride. But half of all trips in Melbourne are under 4.2 kilometres. So that's sort of a 10 to 15-minute ride, a very slow, easy 15-minute ride. And so if you can replace all those trips or even a percentage of those trips um, with bike riding, it makes an enormous difference, not just on the broader community, it makes an enormous difference in the people riding. And we're not talking about people zooming along at a million miles an hour. We're talking about just people poodling along down the shops, just wandering down to visit their friends. And at that sort of 10 to 15 kilometre hour speed, which is you don't get all sweaty, but inevitably you're going to be there quicker than if you drove a car because you'd have to find a place to park and it'd be a bit of a pain. But So it can be just as fast and it can actually create a much nicer environment where you have less motorised traffic. And it's a key thing that cycling is a form of traffic and it has to be acknowledged as so before you get any meaningful change because if it's always just the peripheral, it's always just these tiny minority of people, usually usually people like me, unfortunately, middle-aged men in Lycra, not that I <laughs> always wear Lycra, um, then there will be no this, you know, real shift towards a broader acceptance. Um because they, you know, there's been lots of studies. There was a sort of a seminal study by this guy called Geller in, at Portland Council in the US. And he was trying to, who rides, who doesn't ride, what's going on? I don't, I'm trying to categorise. And the categorisation he came up with is that there's, there's that what he called the strong and fearless, which is less than half a percent of the population. And they would ride on freeways if you give them the opportunity. You know, I don't care, you know, cars going 100 k's an hour, I don't care, I'm riding. And then you have what are called the... Um, enthused and confident which is about five percent of the population and then you have what's called and they'll ride when there's a little bit of when there's a reasonable amount of safe cycling infrastructure but not all of them and then you have what's called um the interested but concerned which make up about 60 percent of the population and about a third of people just not interested in cycling so it's that interested interested but concerned are the people you really want to aim for because they're the ones who will only ride when it's safe it's easy, it's convenient, and be able to just pop around and replace the trips which previously you'd done in the car. You just jump on the bike because it's the easiest, it's the quickest, it's the most convenient thing to do. Mm. But in order for that to happen, it has to be very safe. It has to be connected and it has to be direct. It was interesting at the rally, a number of the speakers, uh, I think three different women that I spoke to actually said that they'd all had quite serious accidents on bikes at some stage in their life and it had taken them a long time to get back into the saddle. Uh, you know, and it was, wasn't something that I had considered, you know, but it does happen, of course. I wonder what is the kind, what are the barriers to councils investing in safe bike lanes? Like why is this something that you've been doing for years and years? What are the stumbling blocks that you're running up against? It seems like kind of a no-brainer to me that we would prefer bike traffic to car traffic, that even shop owners would prefer people arriving on bikes than having to find a park, but maybe that's not the case. No, no. Um... Yeah, I complete your sentence. Why have you been doing all this years? And then you were going to say without any success. <laughs> but uh, uh, um, the the key things are uh, the way we um, decide, the way we engage, the way councils engage with community. So that so that say so what they do is they get these these um, websites where it's just the same people, and it's usually the angry squeakiest wheel or they go to these pop-up sessions where it's the same angry old white man who's going how dare you take away my car park and so they go oh well we've had 100 people it might be 100 out of 80,000 people but it's because it's always those same people 
that they all thought oh, that's what we're listening to we've engaged with you know engaged with the community and it's just it's the most unscientific thing you could expect to to rely on those results to say this is what the community really wants so so and the pleasing thing is there are a group from the university of sydney have developed this methodology called place score where they compare what um they they have a, a proper rigorous survey they go okay what's good about your your area what, what do you think's better you know what's your priorities and so when they do that have a, a more scientifically based survey they find that nearly all of the things that they take for granted in councils are flipped on their head and there's a really really good um case study in Coffs Harbour in New South Wales and so that's quite a conservative area and so the one the top three things in uh, Coffs Harbour they wanted more protected bike lanes they wanted more open spaces they wanted more pedestrian stuff they didn't want more car, car parking and so you had the traffic engineer the chief traffic engineer saying oh my god I've been doing the wrong thing for 20 years because just the way they who they listen to in the community so there's that and, you, and shopkeepers unfortunately most shopkeepers just cling firmly to the belief that unless there is a car park in front of their shop, they will go out of business. And then another factor is um, traffic engineers, the people who have the money in councils, and Mar as, as an example, Maryland Council, the traffic engineering, they have 20 million bucks a year to spend. And these are traffic engineers, they are trained within, within uh, the university degrees, within the professional development, the only thing that matters is how many cars can go through that stretch of road or that intersection in a given amount of time. There's no consideration about the amenity. There's no consideration about the decreased physical activity and what are the health outcomes of that. I mean, in Australia, we spend $10 billion a year on um, heart disease medications. We spend $6 billion a year on type 2 diabetes medications, and that's without considering all the other flow-on effects from that. But those sorts of things are never, ever considered by traffic engineering departments and local government, and they're the ones who make the decisions of how the roads are split up and who gets what area on the roads. And do you think... So, 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 so I'm doing a project with um, the uh, part of my academic thing. I, I work with... We've done a lot of road safety intervention modelling, um, economic modelling in low- and middle-income countries, and I'm working with a, a group called the FIA Foundation in the, in the UK. And... And one of the things we've rapidly come to the conclusion is that we need to have a public health element to all traffic engineering um, degrees. Because until they, they consider those things, they're always, always just going to build the, um, the same old, you know, how many cars can we get through this, this stretch of road in a certain amount of time. And I guess, you know, over the past year, we had a lot of, in Melbourne, we had a lot of enforced time at home with, you know, that stopped people's uh, driving commutes. And it also we had, you know, I guess exercise time and and you know five kilometer limits of where we could go and certainly in my area that meant a lot more people walking and you know running and taking their bikes uh to you know around that area is a real uh, i guess lack of desire or, or you know real need for a car do you think that has created a you know a, a real opportunity now to uh bring forward the points that you're trying to raise there to a, a public that may be more open to listen to these ideas, you know, when they have slowed down a little bit with some of the things they're doing, they might not have to travel as far for work or perhaps every day that they're not having to commute, that that opens up this conversation a little bit more? Um, that's certainly been discussed a lot, literally all around the world. Um, and some places have moved with amazing speed, like, you know, Oakland and California, they whipped up 
uh, you know, 50 miles of, of protected bike areas and the shut-off streets within a few, within a couple of months. Mm. Um, you know, in Colombia, they're doing extraordinary things in Bogota. In Milan, in Italy, they've, they've done, you know, hundreds of kilometres of protected pop-up bike lanes. We move so slowly in Australia that I've, I'm, I'm concerned that that has gone. We've, we've wasted that opportunity because people are already back to moving around the way they did before. In fact, more so in cars because people don't want to go on public transport. Hmm. But, you know, it has happened, but it hasn't happened here so much, unfortunately. And then there's, there's, other, there's other issues as well because there's a lot of governance issues. I mean, major major issues around there's the arterial roads which are owned by vic roads then you've got the the roads owned by local government and when they cross one the vic roads have priority so they get to say and i think it's reasonable to say that vic roads don't have a strong history of being building great cycling infrastructure there's Mm, occasional i wonder why that could be who'd have thunk it but you know the, the previous guy who was the the CEO, a general manager at Cup called John Merritt, he was fantastic, um, saying all the right things, but he could not bring about the cultural change within Vic Roads. Mm. It's so, kind of like trying to get the AFL to help fund, you know, junior soccer leagues or something. <laughs> They're in direct competition in some ways. They, or they feel that way historically. Yeah, that's how they feel. I think. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today, John. We are out of time here on Uprise Radio, uh, but thanks for stopping by. And um, I wonder, do you think after the, you know, the 100 people riding through to cheering, adoring crowds in Western Footscray that we saw uh, on the weekend, what, what chance do you think uh, in that municipality for some real... I feel like there is a bit of money going to be poured in, you know, I, I, have, I have a sense, maybe from the Department of Transport uh, in, the, in the near future. Yeah, could that be, you know, moved a bit into the streets and linking up the stations and the shops? Uh, the state money won't because the state money, oh, a tiny bit. But um, if, if you look how much money is spent on giving to Vic, Ro- Vic Roads for road building each year and compare how much is in this little bit has gone to cycling, it's, you know, it's less than half a percent. It's tiny. But... um. Maybe, but but I, I think the biggest thing is with having more gung-ho councillors who are prepared to say, no, this is the right thing and we're going to do it. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.